Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. I will cover the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. The context is this, in the previous chapter, on the Monday before Passion Week, Jesus gave a discourse in the temple complex, reflecting on his approaching death. In the first part of John chapter 12, at the last part of John chapter 12, the people disbelieve in his pronouncements when he said he and the Father were one and so forth. The people disbelieve. And so now, that was on Monday, we are now on Thursday, several days later, at the Last Supper. Now, of course, we've skipped what happened on Tuesday. Nothing really happened on Wednesday too much, but on Tuesday a lot happened. I'm going to read you what we skipped, and these skipped events are all in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First of all, before the discourse with those Greeks that happened in chapter 12 that I just talked about, that was on Monday during the day in the temple. On that Monday, on the way into the temple, there was a barren fig tree that Jesus cursed, likening that fig tree to Israel. And then after that Monday, Jesus came back, and then he went back on Tuesday. And I'm going to read you a list of all that happened on Tuesday, the barren fig tree that was Cursed on Monday morning, it was found to be withered. He goes, Jesus goes into the temple on that Tuesday. He challenges the Sanhedrin, well, the Sanhedrin challenges Jesus' authority to be a rabbi. Jesus gives his little discourse on rendering unto Caesar, which is Caesar's, and that which is God to God. He gave his talk to the Sadducees about resurrection when they tried to, to flummox him by saying, Who is a, man, a woman who marries seven men in the resurrection? Whose wife will she be? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus took care of that by saying there's not going to be any marriage in heaven, unfortunately. Well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. God knows what he's doing. Then Jesus answered some Pharisees, What is the first commandment of them all? Then he discussed who the, how could the Messiah be descended from, and at the same time the Lord over David. In Matthew 23, he gave his famous woes on the Pharisees, judgment. He then saw the widow who put two mites, two little tiny coins, into the temple treasury and said her faith was great. He left the temple on Tuesday. That night, he sat down on the mountainside with four of his disciples and gave the Olivet Discourse. And while that was going on, on Tuesday night or perhaps Wednesday, maybe Thursday morning, the Jews and the Judas plot Jesus' death. So all that's going on, and we've skipped that. We can get that in the Synoptic Gospels. Thursday afternoon comes around, and there's a preparation for the Passover, and that's discussed in the Synoptic Gospels. Now, here, which is not an event that is not discussed in the Synoptic Gospels, is the Lord's Supper and Jesus washing his disciples' feet at the Lord's Supper. Actually, the Lord's Supper, of course, is discussed in the Synoptic Gospels, but the beginning of it and a lot of details are left out by John, and I'm sure it's because all the Synoptics had already covered it. So that's where we are. So we start with verse 1, John 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. First problem we have is, what is that before there for? Before the Passover festival? Some people say, well, that means this meal took place before the Passover festival, which can't be because it's Thursday. It's, well, according to A.T. According to, uh, a. Robertson, it's Thursday, Passover night. And so, but if it is Passover, you've got a problem with that before. There's a lot of technical discussion going on by frustrated New Testament PhD scholars about did Simon the did the feast at Simon the leper's house happen at the same time as the Passover on the same night and all this stuff. It's 
it, to me, it's very simple. Before the Passover festival is not referring to when a meal with Simon the leper took place, but before the Passover festival is referring to that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So he's talking about, John is just talking about Jesus' attitude all up until the Passover. So I don't think that's a big problem. So my suggested timing on that is that Jesus arrived in Bethany six days before the Passover, which is Saturday. This is according to John chapter 12, verse 1. Then he had a meal at Simon the leper's, and when Mary anointed his head with oil and his feet. That was two days before the Passover, which was Tuesday. That's discussed in Matthew 26, 2 and Mark 14, 1. Tuesday is two days for the Passover, and now here we are at the Passover meal. Now, when he says, well, when John says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, he's not talking about people in general. He's talking about his disciples, because that's who he's gathered together here with. This is an intimate scene. He loved them from the beginning. And by the way, because of that love, I'm sure that's why the disciples endured such difficult treatment from Jesus. He said, you got to carry your cross. Where the master goes, so the servants must go. And if you're going to come where I'm going to go, I'm going to die. And you got to bear your cross and die with me. And he'd been saying that for a long time. And that's hard That's hard to follow somebody who's saying something like that. But because they knew how much Jesus loved them, they did it. He loved them till the end. He's going to show them the full extent of his love as we get on further into the story here. He's going to wash their feet to show how much he cares for these stumble-bum apostles of his. We go to John 13, verse 2. Now by the time of supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him, to betray Jesus. Now, the devil didn't make Judas do this. The devil went into Judas's heart. Why? Because Judas opened the door and said, Come on in, devil. I'm going to kill Jesus. The possession of the devil, the possession of Judas by the devil was done with Judas's willing permission. This was not a Flip Wilson scenario where the devil made him do it. No, the devil didn't make him do it. The devil took his opportunity that Jesus gave him. Now, how did the betrayal took place that the devil put in the heart of Judas to do. This was this refers to the agreement Judas had already made with the chief priest, which as I said just a while ago was probably Wednesday night or Thursday afternoon. I mean who knows, it could have been Tuesday at night too while he was giving the Olivet Discourse with with other disciples. We don't know when it was, but at some time they're making a deal Judas is making a deal with a high priest, Luke 22, 3 through 6. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priest and temple police how he could hand him over, hand Jesus over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. This is also mentioned in Matthew 26. So... We go to John 13, verses 3 through 5. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his, Jesus' hands, that he, Jesus, had come from God, and that he, Jesus, was going back to God. So he, Jesus, got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around himself. So just as Jesus is contemplating dying, the last this is one of his last acts, he washes the disciples' feet. Verse 5. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. All right, Jesus laid aside his robe. That was his outer garment that would get in the way and would get wet and messed up as he was washing the feet. So he took that off. Then he took a towel and tied it around his waist. That towel is what he used to dry off the disciples' feet when he finished washing them. Now, this was a peculiar action of Jesus, as John Gill points out. There was no custom among the Jews to wash a rabbi's disciples' feet. 
There was no custom among the Jews to wash anybody's feet at Passover. They would wash guest feet at home now. They would do that, but that was usually not just any guest, but it was for strangers and travelers who had come a long way. Let me give a quote from John Gill. Not this custom, quote, not, is not used by the Jews at their Passover, nor at their private entertainments or common meals, but at the restrict at the reception of strangers or travelers which have just come off a long journey. So I'm sure the disciples were kind of shocked for that reason, that it wasn't a normal activity that Jesus was doing. And also they were shocked because he was the teacher and they were the disciples. And they seemed to be, it seemed to be backwards who was washing whose feet. And besides, washing feet was a slave's job, not the Son of God. The proper order was reversed. Let's look at that so in verse 4. So he got up from supper. What does that refer to? It refers to the previous verse, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. Because he was going back to God and everything was in his hands, everything pertaining to salvation was in Jesus' hands, he said, okay, this is my job, so that's why I've got to go wash these people's feet. He was going to die soon, so he had to teach them once more on humility. Now, of course, remember the apostles had a hard time with that. Even I can't remember exactly when, several times, twice, in the Perean ministry, or maybe in the late Judean ministry was one of them, they're arguing over who's going to be the big shot, who's going to sit at the right hand and the left hand of, Jesus's, uh, of Jesus. Jesus had to teach them humility. As Adam Clark put it, the disciples had earlier shown too much attachment to worldly honor, and continuing on this way would have destroyed the church before it got started. Now when it says in verse 4 that Jesus got up from supper. That doesn't mean they ate and then got up and washed. A lot of people take it that way, I think, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because, as Adam Clark says, the custom was to wash before supper, although there wasn't a custom of washing at Passover meals. There was a custom of washing travelers or guest feet, but that would happen before they ate, and that makes sense because you got to lay down on the cushions there right next to the table with your nasty feet well that's the perfect time to wash your feet is before you you lay down you reclined at meal so probably what it means is jesus got up at the supper he got up from supper in other words from the supper table that's all it means and it was probably before supper before the dishes were served now in verse 5 it says that jesus poured water and began to wash his disciples feet well think about it Judas has not been has not been fingered yet by Jesus. Jesus must have washed Judas's feet. Now, how how ironic is that? He's serving Judas while Judas is getting ready to get him nailed to a cross. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, beyond, quote unquote, beyond all doubt, Judas was there getting his feet washed. Now, you would think this is my idea. One would think that having your feet washed by the Son of God might have made Judas a little bit less desirous of killing Jesus. Doesn't seem to have affected him any because he wanted money. John 13, 6-9. He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And we need to emphasize this. As Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out, the you and the my should be strongly emphasized. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? In other words, the order's reversed in Peter I think that's probably reasonable. Peter's trying to point to Jesus. Hey, you got it backwards. I ought to be washing your feet. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but after, afterward you will know. And I will take that afterward as referring to the verses following this when Jesus explains to them what the symbolism of washing the feet were. It could mean after Jesus died and resurrected and then Peter learned how to serve his other apostles, but I don't think that's what it means. Verse 8. You will never wash my feet ever, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, Peter, 
quit being so proud. Now, Peter showed some humility and some pride. He was proud. He was humble and that he didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. He thought he should be washing Jesus' feet. That showed humility. But he was also showing pr pride by saying, I'm going to tell you, Jesus, how to operate here. You don't tell the Son of God how to operate. I mean, you just don't. Peter was kind of, he, he had a relationship with Jesus. We were pretty frank a lot of times, you know. You're not going to go down there to Jerusalem and get crucified, Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And now here, Peter said, uh, Jesus says, hey, you don't let me wash you? You ain't got nothing to do with me anymore, buddy. Simon Peter contemplated that retort. And in verse 9, he says, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, yes, yes, wash me completely. Not just my feet, but I want to be washed by you completely. All right, now there's some symbolism here. In verse 8, Jesus says, If I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. Now, he could have been referring to the actual physical foot washing that he was doing with Peter. But I suspect that he was talking about, If you don't let me wash you clean from your sins, you've got nothing to do with me. The NIV Study Bible says this, and I agree with them. They say that Jesus was looking beyond the foot washing to the symbolism of the foot washing. Peter needed a spiritual cleansing, and the washing symbolized that. As John Gill put it, if Peter wasn't cleansed by Jesus' soon-coming blood sacrificed, he wouldn't be saved. So I think that's what Jesus is referring to. You've got to be washed by me. You've got to have all your sins forgiven, Peter. And you can start right by, by submitting yourself to this symbol, which is designed to teach you humility, which apparently you don't have enough of yet. Peter was a rash son of a gun. He got his, reputa his, his reputation for that was well-deserved. Now, when Peter said, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. He, those were just two other parts of his body that symbolized the whole rest of his body. He didn't mean just particularly the hands and the head. He meant you just wash me completely. Whole body. Verses 10 through 11 of John 13. One who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, you are not all clean. Now verse 10 is somewhat puzzling as the commentators point out one who is washed doesn't need to wash anything except for his feet and he's completely clean well it's difficult but i have got one two three four five commentators who have come up with a common idea and i think they're right even though it seems to me sort of a stretch this is john gill adam clark the meyer commentary the ellicott commentary and grotius the international law export protestant guy and i'm sure there are others i didn't look very far this is what they say it means he says Look, you're clean if you're washed in Jesus' blood, as John Gill says. You're washed, but if you get soiled by daily life by having to walk in the muck and the mire of this disgusting, sinful world, come back and I'll wash your feet off, and then you'll be completely clean again, and you can live a sanctified life. You can be completely whole spiritually. Let me give you a quote from Ellicott that states that proposition. Quote, That day had furnished an example. Their pride and self-seeking was of the spirit of the world and not of the spirit of Christ. His act was a cleansing from that, but it did not imply that they were not clean. The lesson is that all, from apostles downwards, need the daily renewing of the grace of God, and that none should find in failure, or even in the evil which clings to his daily path, reasoning for questioning the reality of the moral change which has made him the child of God. In other words, Christians do sin. That doesn't mean they're not clean. They just got to get their feet clean. Jesus cleans their feet. And off they go into the sinful world again. And they'll sin again. And Jesus will come clean their feet again. Because they are every bit completely clean. Now, I don't know if that's what Jesus meant. But I do know that's true. And I think it is true. All right, so now that he finishes talking about being clean, he now mentions that not all of you are clean. And, of course, who he's referring to is Judas. 
And he says it out loud, so Judas heard this. Well, not necessarily. He was talking to Peter, so maybe maybe Judas didn't hear this. Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Jesus knew who would betray him. I wish I had the sights, but as we go through, as we've gone through the Gospels, it beca- it was clear that Jesus knew at some point that Jesus was that Judas was going to betray him. He might have even known it when he chose him. I don't know, but at some point he knew it. But he kept him in the band of disciples anyway because he knew that God's plan had to be fulfilled. He had to be betrayed, crucified, so he could be resurrected, so he could wipe out the sins of everyone in the world who believed in him. John emphasizes Jesus's command of the situation. You are clean, but not all of you. Jesus is not worried about being betrayed. He's not cowering there at the Last Supper. He is in complete charge. Now notice when in verse 10, Jesus says, not all of you are clean. That implies very strongly that Judas was not saved. It wasn't that he was saved, believing in Jesus, then lost his salvation. If you're a good non-Arminian, if you're a good Augustinian like yours truly, then you will not believe that anybody can lose their salvation. I mean, you know, you ever seen a human son decide not to be the... Have you ever seen a human father decide that one of his sons is not going to be his son even when the son went out and did stupid things like robbing banks or whatever? No, a son's a son. And so it says here that Jesus says that Judas... Says of Judas that he was not clean. You were clean, but not all of you. I mean, Judas is not clean. So that means... He was never saved. So when he died, he's a son of perdition. He went to hell, but he was never saved to start with. So if any Arminian might be tempted to use Judas's examples of somebody who got saved and lost his salvation, don't do it. You'll get clobbered in a debate. Now, Jesus could have exposed Judas right then. As I, as I mentioned earlier, he could have exposed him in a lot of places, I think. But he knew he had to die. He knew that Judas was necessary for that, as I said. And so that's probably why he didn't do it. Now, why did Jesus even mention this point? I mentioned, it it seems to me it would have put Judas on guard, except that he probably said it just to Peter, didn't say it to Judas also. If Judas had heard it, this might have made him flee from the disciples and abandon his plan. And that would mess up God's plan for Jesus' crucifixion. So that might have been one reason why he said it privately to Peter and didn't say it to Judas, because he didn't want Judas to get suspicious that Jesus knew about what was up. It could be that he was trying. Jesus was trying to put the disciples on guard on guard against Judas. After all, if Judas killed, got if Judas got Jesus killed, he could just as well get Jesus' disciples killed. And Jesus certainly didn't want that. He wanted them to establish the church. So maybe he was getting them, putting them on guard against Judas. We go to verses 12 and 15 of John 13. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and said to them. Do you know what I've done for you? Well, now, obviously, he knew what they had done physically. He'd washed their feet. He was saying, do you know symbolically what I've done for you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord. This is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I've done for you. Now, I'm big on Jesus being an example. He's a new man. We should be a new, we're a new man. He walks in righteousness, we walk in righteousness. He got baptized in water, we got baptized in water. He got baptized in the Holy Spirit, we, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. On and on and on and on. He forgave his enemies, we're supposed to forgive our enemies. <laughs> so he's our example, all right. And this is the last thing he did to give us an example. We're supposed to serve one another. We're supposed to wash each other's feet. We're supposed to serve one another. Now, some people get into a discussion over whether Jesus meant to institute an ordinance of literal Foot washing. NIV Study Bible mentions this as a possibility. That's because a lot of their purchasers actually probably believe that. 
John Gill denies it. I deny it too. I don't think he meant that we're supposed to go around washing each other's feet like the apostles did. There's nothing wrong with it. I've actually participated in a couple of those, at least one that I remember. But I'm not so sure. It seems to me it's culturally awkward, you know, taking people's shoes off and washing their feet. They were used to doing that back then. We ain't used to doing that today. So I think I think that's a cultural thing that, what do they say, can be contextualized. Although it doesn't bother me if somebody wants to do that. But the point is we're supposed to serve one another. That's just a great example of being like a humble slave and serving your brother. Whatever they need, you give it to them. I don't mean you give it to them promiscuously. I don't mean you give things to them that make your brother hurt because you enable them to do something wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if they have genuine need, use your wisdom, use your discretion, and help them out in such a way that they will be helped. First Timothy 5.10, Paul said this, referring to elders, is well known for good works. That is, excuse me, not elders, not elders, widows who were put on the list. Well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. So some women there washed the saints' feet. I believe that was literal there because that's what they did back then. Now remember, Jesus had already told the disciples, hey, you don't understand what, about this foot washing now, but afterward you will know. And I think he's, this, here we are at the afterward. He's teaching him. He says in verse 15, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I've done for you. So that's why he's telling them. That's how he tells them what he promised to tell them to explain it to them later. As he said in verse 7, you're going to understand just a little bit. Now, teacher and Lord, that's rabbi and Lord. Those are dignified titles among the Jews. And Jesus said, yeah, I'm teacher and Lord. You call me that. And yes, I am. Gill and Clark point out that the Jews frequently gave these titles to their doctors and men of learning. Now, notice, as John Gill points out, Jesus is obviously not criticizing the disciples for using these titles. In fact, he commends them. He said, yeah, in fact, yeah, you call me teacher and Lord. This is well said. Well said is not criticize them. This is saying this is a good thing. Now he did say that his disciples were not supposed to call each other rabbi, teacher. This was in Luke 22. Of course, this is universally that verse is universally trampled on by pastors and right reverend doctors and apostle, right reverend bishop, and so forth. Doctor, reverend, all these honorific titles are completely abuses the not only the spirit but the express words of the new testament the express words of jesus we are not supposed to do it but jesus said it's okay for us to call him that in fact that's another reason why we shouldn't do it we need to save the honorific titles for the person who really deserves it that's that's jesus christ now when they called him teacher and lord when they called him rabbi that meant that jesus had the authority to teach and instruct as john gill points out when they called him lord that means that Jesus had the authority to rule and govern them. That's assuming Lord had the messianic significance. And, of course, as you know, Lord sometimes just means sir. It's sometimes just a polite, honorific way of addressing somebody like sir, ma'am, madam. Or it could, it's ambiguous. Sometimes it can just refer to the, the Lord of the universe. But I think here, because of how late it is in his ministry, how the disciples seem to know who he is now, when they're calling him Lord, they're calling him Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah. John Gill uh, points out that this could be translated as a command, this phrase that says, Do you know what I've done for you? It could be translated as, as Know what I've done for you. Either way it works. doesn't matter. KGV translates it that way, actually. A point of small importance. If it was a question, of course, it was a question to summon their attention to the answer. I used to instruct students on how to give presentations and I say start your presentation with a question 
Would you like to make a million dollars next year in your new sales job? And then, of course, everybody's attention has gotten. John 13, verses 16 through 17. I assure you, this is Jesus continuing, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And, of course, what he's saying is, look, I am greater than you. I wash people's feet. Well, by golly, you can wash people's feet because you ain't greater than me. You're not greater than me such that you can say, well, I'm not going to wash people's feet. No, the greatest one of all washed feet. That was me, Jesus, the Lord of the universe. I wash feet. You're lower than me. And if one greater than you washed feet, then one lower than me can wash feet. So wash feet. Serve your brother. Verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. He makes the point that, you know, knowing's not good enough. You know you're supposed to serve your brother, but you're not going to be blessed unless you D, let me give you a quote on that, unless you quotation mark D-O, close quotation mark, them. Unless you do them. I used to tell all these young college students I used to have all the time in China, they always fall in love, you know, the drop of a hat. And I say, I'm going to tell you something, love ain't no feeling. It ain't a feeling. It's what you do for somebody. Boy, that was the hardest thing to get through their romantic little chocolate and valentine and rosed, rose-filled heads. Now, this idea of a slave not being greater than his master, Jesus used that expression often. Let me give you some examples in John 15, verse 20. Remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Just like master, like servant. Like Jesus being persecuted, like the apostles being persecuted. Matthew 10, 24-25. A disciple is not above his teacher, or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? In other words, if they call the master, the teacher, Beelzebul of the devil, well, they're going to call you Beelzebul of the devil. Luke 6, 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. This is a little more positive. Bad things will happen to you because of your teacher, but on the other hand, you will learn things that your teacher knows. You will be fully trained, and you will know what it's like to be like me, Jesus is telling them. We go to verse 18, John chapter 13. I'm not speaking about all of you. In other words, he's not telling Judas Iscariot to serve one another and to wash another's feet. Uh-uh, he's beyond that. He's not going to be blessed by doing any of that. So he's not speaking about Judas. I know those I have chosen, and that I'm assuming that means chosen. Well, that could either mean chosen for salvation or chosen to be a disciple. But at any rate, whatever it means, Jesus knew who they were, and he knew, and he knew, he knew Judas. But the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. This is a quotation. The scripture that must be fulfilled is, a, is Psalm 41.9. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. And John Gill says that psalm written by David is either referring to Ahithophel, one of David's counselors who turned against him in the civil wars against Absalom, or it could have been Absalom himself. But whoever it was, Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, David had a lot of close friends who turned on him, if you read all that story back in, uh, I think it's Second Kings. What's this mean, raised his heel? The one who eats my bread is raised his heel. Well, eat, eating bread together, it means you're eating a meal together. And in the East, that was a symbol of high hospitality, deep intimacy. 
It was almost a religious sacred duty to take care of strangers with hospitality. That reminds me, I was in Israel and we were in the Arab territory where there was some Bedouins, or in the, in the Negev actually, and there were some uh, Bedouins, traveling Arabs there. And I know it was a tourist sort of thing, but they had this big tent, it was out in the middle of nowhere, and by golly, we sat down there and they served us and they served us until we were about to pop. So I think that's a remnant of what actually existed back then. But anyway, eating bread is a symbol of intimacy, but raising your heel is two options for what that means. It could mean raising one's heel as in shaking the dust off your feet. I don't want to have anything to do with you. So the dirt that I walked on that's around your feet, it's dirty. It's nasty because you're dirty and nasty. Therefore, I'm going to lift up my heel, point it at your face, and shake my foot and make the dust fall off, the dirt fall off, to show that I ain't got nothing to do with you. Well, that's, that's a good metaphor. Some people say that it means when one raises his heel against somebody, it's like a donkey getting ready to kick you, or a horse. They didn't have horses, so it would be donkey. Well, I have been, a, I had a horse one time that tried to kick me, and it was interesting because when a horse kicks his leg out sideways, we called it a donkey kick, because apparently that's how donkeys kick. I don't know where that expression came from, but everybody says, you know, a horse kicked me with a donkey kick. He didn't kick straight behind him, but sideways. And I was walking behind that darn horse. His name was Mr. Perfect. We called him Mr. Perfect Ass, because that's what his name was, what he should have been. And that's, that would have been a better name for him. But we were walking uh, through the grass, trying to get him some food, trying to feed the darn horse. And he just tries to kick me sideways. Barely missed, a couple inches. I'll never forget that. Scared me to, scared the blazes out of me. But anyway, this is showing the great contrast between somebody who's so intimate as there, but has betrayed Jesus. Eats, eats his bread in intimacy, and then raised his heel against Jesus in hostility. We go to verse 19 of John chapter 13. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am He. I am telling you what before. I'm telling you now before what happens, before Judas's betrayal happens. Now you can imagine what a shock that would be to find out the other disciples find out that one of their number has betrayed the Son of Man and gotten him killed. That would have been a horrible shock. He could have just paralyzed them. So he's saying, look, I'm getting you ready for this, so don't be surprised when it happens. And also because it's a prophecy that comes true, that's one more evidence that you will believe that I am. The Holman Christian Study Bible has he in brackets. I am he. I am the one. I am, that's the same phrase that God used in Exodus at the burning bush when he spoke to Moses. He says, I am who I am. It means Yahweh in Hebrew. So this is often repeated as I pointed out as we've gone through John. Jesus says this a lot. I am. I am the truth, the way, the truth, and life. I am the door. I am. I am. Verse 20, and we'll finish it up for this audio. Jesus says, I assure you. In other words, I'm making a special point here, and I'm emphasizing it by saying, I assure you, colon, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So now he's saying, look, you're going to be shaken up by Judas's betrayal, but hey, I'm sending you out anyway, and anybody that receives you is just like they're receiving me. So you're important, guys. You're important, disciples. And of course, if they receive your word, they therefore receive me. And when they receive me, they receive the Heavenly Father. So what you guys are doing in the eyes of God is very, very important. This sentiment is 
echoed John in John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Matthew 10:40. The one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Now, these are the classic verses. John 13, 20, John 20, 21, Matthew 10, 40. There's another one in John 15, which I don't have in front of me. But anyway, these three right here, plus another one in John 15, I think it is. These verses are great to use for these screwed-up liberals who are saying, well, I believe in Jesus. I think he was wonderful. But there's apostles. They were just human beings. They made mistakes. No, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of Christ. They wrote an inerrant scripture in the original autographs. And Jesus said, you listen to them, you listen to him. You listen to the apostles. I'll never forget. I had a church meeting in China in my apartment. And there was this woman sitting to my, directly to my right. She was a Catholic, didn't know the word very well. And we were discussing something in the meeting, open meeting. Everybody's talking. And she says, she says, well, you know, I don't agree with Paul on that. And I immediately said, wait a minute. You've got no right to disagree with Paul. If you disagree with Paul, you're disagreeing with Jesus. It was like she never heard something like that. Well, being a Catholic, well, being a Protestant, liberal Protestant, that's the way those people think. Don't think that way. The Apostle's Word is the Word of Christ, and the Word of Christ is the Word of God the Father who made the heavens and the earth. And as I mentioned earlier, the reason Jesus said, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me, the reason he said that is because they were very soon going to be a persecuted, huddled down, ragtag band of zeros very shortly. Jesus wanted them to know that they were sent to the world by the Son of God, who was sent to the world by God the Father. So... Let's don't ignore the apostles, those apostles who wrote most of the New Testament. Let's don't ignore them. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They might have been fallible. They were not infallible by what they did, by the way, but by what they wrote. So let's don't denigrate their words and make a mockery out of Christianity. Ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with John 13, verses 1 through 20. I hope you enjoy this audio, and I hope you stay tuned for the next audio in which we will watch Jesus at the Last Supper finger Judas and point him out as his betrayer. See you then.